Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. As we roll into summer, I want to start this episode with a big thank you. Because of you, EU Confidential has now been downloaded more than one million times. That's not bad for a podcast we started making by talking into little phone boxes, and where on more than one occasion I've managed to screw up the audio recordings. Sorry about that, Tony Blair. On the news front, it's the end of an era here in Brussels. The Juncker Commission is all but over. Martin Selmayr is rather implausibly headed off to Austria to be an ambassador. Britain has sent in the clowns to Downing Street, and the new Prime Minister Boris Johnson has a new magic trick. He can make 17 ministers disappear overnight. How fantastic. And the rest of us are sweating like mad as temperatures top 40 degrees Celsius in many parts of Europe. Not that anyone is paying attention to any of that in Washington, D.C., where I spent the first half of the week. The city was consumed by the Robert Mueller hearings. Those hearings certainly proved correct Nancy Pelosi's caution over impeaching President Trump. The impeachment train? That's going nowhere fast. That's my prediction. But instead of depressing you with the low tone of 2019's high politics, this week we are turning to literature. Andrew Gray interviews the author Peter May, who kickstarted his career as a best-selling thriller writer by fictionalizing and making Brussels sexy. No wonder we like him here at Politico. Well, I'm joined now by Andrew Gray, our EU editor. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. You're very welcome, Ryan. Now, I wanted to talk to you because you interviewed Peter May, who is the author of a book, The Man with No Face, and it's actually a reissue of a very old book about Brussels and intrigue that occurs in this city. And I know that you thought that was interesting to speak to him because we've had a spate of books by people who 
work or used to work at the EU and then they go into um, the fiction business. And then we've started to get some books by some big authors like Robert Manasse about what goes on in Brussels. And Peter May was actually out here. And I wanted you to sort of tell us a little bit about what it was like to catch up with a man who was one of the original people dramatising Brussels. Yeah, that's true. And just to sort of set the scene for people who don't know, Peter May has become a best-selling author, a thriller writer, particularly well-known. He's a Scottish author. And he wrote a, a series of books set in the Western Isles of Scotland on the Isle of Lewis, uh, which became real bestsellers. And in fact, he, he told me when we met a few weeks ago here in Brussels that initially nobody wanted to touch these books. He'd been writing for years, couldn't get a publisher for these books or an agent. His French agent, he lives mm-hmm. in France, said, I'll take a look. She said, yep, I'll take the worldwide rights. And the UK was one of the last places to sign up to the book, the last places he got a publisher, and those books have now sold 3 million copies in the UK. Wow. So there you go. That buys you a nice summer house in Provence. Yeah, if you are a budding author or somebody who's struggling away, you know, do not take no for an answer. Do not assume that if a publisher or an agent isn't interested in your book that nobody else will be. Uh, Anyway, that's a bit of an aside. But as you say, and when somebody becomes famous, of course, like that, He's actually been plugging away writing books for decades, including when he was a journalist. So in the 1970, late 70s, I think, he came to Brussels, took some leave from his job as a reporter at the Scotsman newspaper and turned up in the Brussels of the 1970s and experienced the kind of EU bubble as it was then. And so for me, and now, of course, this book has been reissued. He's a bigger name now and he's done a kind of light update of the book. And he was here in Brussels a few weeks ago to promote it. So quick plot summary. A Scottish journalist is dispatched to Brussels and soon after he arrives, the colleague he's staying with and a British government minister are found murdered. And the story develops from there. So it's a crime thriller, it's a political thriller, and now it's also something of a historical document. We've also included some I'm, excerpts. I'm guessing dark and gloomy, yeah, well, a this bit is francophone, that sort of feel. Yeah, we're talking one of the hottest days of the year in Brussels, but the book is a kind of, it's almost kind of Brussels noir. You know, there's a lot of cigarette smoking. It's set in the middle of winter. And it's a much smaller European Union. It's before... It's a bit like The Commissioner by Boris Johnson's father, Stanley Johnson. Maybe it is. Maybe it could be read, you know, as a companion work to that great uh, work of literature. So what I found very interesting about it, it gives you a snapshot of a very different Brussels bubble at that time. You know, a much smaller EU... um, a francophone European economic community, really. And so you get a real flavour of that. And you'll hear uh, Peter May talk in a moment. We've also included a few excerpts from the audiobook read by an actor called Peter Forbes. So you get three Scottish accents for the price of one this week in uh, EU Confidential. So that gives you a little bit of a flavour of the Brussels he found at that time. And he talks about that. And he was back for the first time in Brussels in about 40 years. So he talks a bit about what's changed, what's the same. And he's also a, a screenwriter, and so we ask him a bit about if he was writing Brexit as a thriller or as a, as a screenplay, how would he change it and what would the ending be? Well, we've had the appetizer. Let's get the main course. And I don't know if Brexit is the dessert or if it's something else. We're going to get into that interview with Peter May now. Right. And first you'll hear a little excerpt before uh, Peter May explains how the book came about. The Berlimont stood in the heart of the commercial sector of Brussels a massive building shaped like a star if viewed from above, towering over the city skyline, great walls of window curving inwards. The outer wall of each office was glass from floor to ceiling, so that looking in from the outside, 
you felt that half the building had been cut away, like a half-demolished tenement, and you at once had a private view into every room or office where people worked and fought and hatched plots. There were two aspects to it. The first was a story that I read in one of the Sunday newspapers way back uh, mid-70s about the assassination of a French politician in a Paris street late one night. And it was kind of shrouded in mystery and there was a sense of cover-up about it at the highest levels of government. And I thought, there's something intriguing in all this. Let's take that as an idea, but let's transplant it to Brussels because that's the new beating heart of Europe, as it kind of was then. And Britain had just joined and there was still a big debate about you know, whether Britain should be a member of the European community, I think it was called in those days, or the common market. And it just seemed like this was the place to set it. That was, you know, the big current political debate at the time. And, and of course, 1979, which is roughly when it takes place, I was still working in newspapers and covered the general election that year that Margaret Thatcher won to all our cost. Um, and so, you know, I, I put a general election back in the UK into the mix and the other element of the story was a review I read in one of the Sunday papers about a book, which I then went and obtained, which was called Nadia, A Case of Extraordinary Drawing Ability in an Autistic Child. And it was this child, Nadia, who was the daughter of, I think, Ukrainian immigrants. She was autistic, had this extraordinary drawing ability, and, and the book was full of her drawings with perspective I mean, just unbelievable stuff. She could somehow look at a building, for example, and project what that might look like from above and accurately draw it. I mean, it, just amazing stuff. And the two things then started coming together. I thought, well, I'm going to have my political assassination. No witnesses, but there is. There's one, and it's the autistic girl who can't speak, who can't tell anybody, she, but she draws the killer. But she's interrupted before she finishes it, and it's missing the face, hence the title of the book. And did you know Brussels at all at that time? Had you been to Brussels at all when you decided to set the book here? I hadn't, no. It was uh, my first visit. At that time, I was working for the Scotsman newspaper, which then did not pay very well, probably still doesn't. I think it was the poorest paid of all the Scottish newspapers at the time, although it had a great reputation. And I, I you know, I was reasonably newly married, I had a young kid, I had a mortgage, I couldn't afford, I mean there were flights in those days from Edinburgh to Brussels but I mean it was like 200 quid or something, which was a lot of money back then and I, I couldn't afford it so I got one of those very cheap overnight fares from Glasgow to London on the train and did the whole journey, Glasgow, London, London, Dover, Dover, Ostend on the ferry, train from Ostend to Brussels and it took me 15 hours to get here it was the middle of winter, it was freezing cold, it started to snow. And I like to walk when I'm in a city because that's how you get to know a place. And I just spent days and days walking around. But I had the added advantage that the Scotsman's uh, European correspondent at that time was a guy called David Gow. So I'd contacted him in advance and he set me up with accreditation for the Berlimont, the Council of Ministers. So I got to go to the, all the press briefings and mix with the press pack as it was at that time and uh, get a real good feel for how it all functioned. How long did you spend here? I was only here for about a week because I had to take you know a week of my holidays and I couldn't afford to stay any longer than that so I crammed a lot into that week. The press briefing was still in progress 
the five men of the porte-parole, sitting along a table at the top end of the salle de presse, addressing a clutch of fifty or more reporters in French. The journalists were arranged along five rows of benches, set in a semicircle around the top table, like a mini-conference chamber. Microphones at each place, headsets linked to translation booths in galleries set high up along either side. They were empty. The journalists asking questions, all it seemed, fluent in French. Bannerman came in at the back of the room and moved around to a bar on the right-hand side, where he ordered a beer. A number of reporters were seated on stools drinking beer or coffee, chatting quietly or reading papers. Le Monde, The Guardian, La Belgique Soir, Die Welt, La Stampa, The Times. Very few of the newsmen seated around the benches seemed to be paying much attention. There was an oddly casual atmosphere, of informality or perhaps indifference. Well, it sounds like you got a very good impression of the place at that time. It's very striking uh, reading the book now, you know, some things remaining very much the same, some very different. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, a very male-dominated world at that time, when you talk about the spokes, the porte-parole, as they were called then, the spokesperson service, as it's called now, a briefing composed entirely of men, briefing, I'm guessing, overwhelmingly mainly other men. Yes. Uh, what were your overall impressions of Brussels and what we now call, anyway, the Brussels bubble, that the kind of community around the European institutions? What kind of struck you from that time? Well, I was very struck when I got here about the cynicism among the journalists. I mean, they were a real cynical bunch. A lot of them seemed more interested in, you know, drinking and eating and having a good time than rooting around and finding good stories. You know, it was. I think it was a bit of a sinecure in lots of ways. And, of course, French was the lingua franca in those days, and I guess... It was those journalists who were fortunate enough to be able to speak French who would get this post, and I think it was regarded as something of a sinecure. But, you know, cynicism was rife, most definitely. Uh, And so I kind of just absorbed all that and kind of got the feel for how it was. And, of course, Brussels in winter, you know, depths of winter, is quite a bleak, cold place. And I think probably my initial response or reaction to it was that it was a a kind of weird mix of Glasgow and Paris. It had some of that kind of industrial, kind of downtrodden element of Glasgow about it and some of the glamour of Paris sort of all mixed up together, which made it quite unique and gave it a certain character of its own. So you were saying just before we started recording that you've uh, come back to Brussels actually for the first time since then. What strikes you in terms of changes? It all seems extraordinarily different. It doesn't seem like I remember it at all. As I walk around, I see little pockets of the old Brussels that seem vaguely familiar, but there's been so much new build. It it just seems to have evolved and changed and grown. So much more traffic than there was back then. And how big a story was Europe in the UK at that time? How much was it part of your work as a journalist? How prominent was it as a political theme? I think you write in the foreword to the book, you know, you're struck by how some things have changed and some things haven't in the political context in all the intervening time. Well, I mean, I was a a journalist in Scotland all through the 70s and um, there was an awareness of Europe at that time which was very strong. I mean, there was the referendum in 75, which I voted in, 
and I think that was about 70% in favour of remaining. But, I mean, that debate about whether Britain should be part of the common market or not was raging then, and the people who lost the referendum in 75 have been working very hard insinuating their way into the media with extraordinary propaganda and misleading stories over 40 years to persuade the British public to vote to leave. They never gave up. So that debate has, it's its still, ra- I mean, Brexit, I mean, it's still raging now. And 40 years on, really, that hasn't changed at all. Did you want to say anything about Europe with the book? Or were you really thinking, I, I want to write a good story and this is a good setting? Yeah, it was primarily the setting. I thought it was a good setting. It was at the time a very, uh, it was courant. It was, you know, the place where politics was burgeoning in Europe. And I wanted to tell a good story, yeah. I mean, primarily the storytelling is all about the characters at the end of the day. You can have a good story, but if your readers don't care about the characters, then the story will never work. So characters were all important. And it was important to come here also to meet the kind of characters who were populating this place at the time. And so I got a lot of inspiration for those characters, um, particularly from the cynicism that I found there. I've come to rake a little muck, Bannerman said, if there's any to be raked. Willis laughed. Fertile ground for you, my old son. The place is alive with corruption. You want to take a look at the EEC system of awarding grants to the third world. Some fantastic rip-offs there. Large backhanders to commission officials from some of these tin-pot dictatorships where half the country's gross earnings are spent on royal palaces and luxurious watering holes for the leadership. Wouldn't take much to dig something out there. Kearney took a slug of beer and pointed a finger at Bannerman. And there's the allocation of contracts to companies in member countries for infrastructure projects. There's almost certainly fraud involved. Why, for example, does France get more community money for road building than any other member country when a godforsaken place like Ireland gets fuck all? And agriculture's another rich source of fraud, Willis said, if you care to do a bit of digging. Bannerman made no attempt to disguise his contempt. Then why the fuck do some of you people not do the digging yourselves? Well, I was going to say one of the things that struck me about it is that you wrote the book while, you know, still really very, very young, but there is quite a lot of cynicism in it uh, from, and I would say not just reflected by what some of the journalist characters say, but there's some I would say some cynicism about journalism in there as well. I mean, a lot of the journalist characters don't come out of it too well. Did that reflect the time that you were maybe already thinking of leaving journalism or a bit fed up with it? I think you could probably safely say that, yes. Um, I'd never, I mean, journalism had never been my career path. I wanted to write creative fiction. I wanted to write books primarily. And, you know, when I left school, the problem was, what's the career path to become, you know, a novelist? There was none. In those days, there were no creative writing courses at university. So there was, there was no point in even thinking about going down that road. And I kind of stumbled by accident on a one-year full-time course in journalism, which was run by the NCTJ in Edinburgh. And I went to that. I thought, well, journalism isn't what I'd foreseen for myself, but it's a way of making a living as a writer. So... You know, I went into journalism. I, I was very fortunate to go into that course and got onto a local newspaper and won an award and then moved on to the Scotsman. And I was in journalism for eight years, I think, in total. 
they were fantastic years. I mean, for, for somebody who wants to write fiction, it introduced me to things I would never otherwise have encountered in my, you know, normal life. Such so, as? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I, I mean, I think I met something like three or four prime ministers during my time in journalism, past and present and, and future, actually. <laughs> um, I got harangued by Margaret Thatcher at a press conference one time. Um, also, death, you know, going to fatal fires, um, covering uh, court cases, murders, you know, a whole range of things. Going into council estates like Fergusley Park and Paisley, which was, you took your life in your hands in those days going in there. I mean, and it was an eye-opener, you know, for a middle-class boy from Southside of Glasgow to go into Fergusley Park. You didn't leave your car on its own, you know. And it gave me a fantastic insight into life and people and politics and the world. I wondered now if, even if coming back here, some of us who work, uh, live and work here, wouldn't automatically have thought of Brussels as a good setting for a thriller because, as you say, a lot of what we cover is kind of nitty-gritty of policy. You know, the closest we get to drama is an all-night summit. Do you, uh, do you have any... Do you think Brussels could still be the setting for a good thriller? Has walking around over the past few days given you any ideas that maybe you could set a new one or Brexit back to one? Well, you see stuff all the time as you're walking around, you know, ideas. I mean, my wife's here with me and she, um, we, we were talking just yesterday about the hotel that we passed, which I think is just called The Hotel. We were looking for a, a cafe where we had a rendezvous with some French journalists. And here were, you know, all these guys in suits with wires coming out of their ears and armed policemen and armoured vehicles. This was clearly top level security and we heard that Mike Pompeo was in town so we figured that's where he was staying you know so you just a little bit of colour as, you, as you're walking past something in the street and you get a sense of oh there's something going on here uh, and so yeah I mean anywhere is a setting for a story anywhere as, lo- as long as you people it with interesting characters. I believe you live in France and have done for quite a number of years and you've said you're very pro-European in your outlook. Why did you choose France and particularly to make your home? I've been going to France for over 40 years, since before I came to Brussels, and uh, I used to go camping when I was young and eventually bought a, a little maison secondaire and spent more and more time and eventually, just about the turn of the century, decided, because my wife and I, or our parents had all passed away, we no longer had ties in Scotland, family ties, and so we decided to cut ourselves adrift from the home umbilical and go and live in France full-time. So we've been there now full-time nearly 20 years, and about five years ago we decided that we would go for French citizenship. So it's a lengthy process. We ended up with a dossier about six inches thick. It took about two years, but I got my citizenship about six weeks before the referendum. (laughs) So... Um, bon timing, as they say in France. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I, I was very happy with that because, you know, what, you know, with the result and everything, at least uh, we were going to remain European citizens. Mm. So Brexit, in a sense, you know, for better or for worse, does have some of the elements of a thriller, right? There are heroes and, and villains and twists and turns. If you were script writing a movie about Brexit, how would you write the final parts? And, you know, how should it end? And how, how do you think it's going to end? Well, it's a good question. I don't, it seems to me it's more like a soap opera. 
And the problem is, you know, they're really bad writing team because they, they keep writing the same episode over and over and over again. We take the same deal back to Parliament again and again. It's the same debate. People say the same things. You think, these are really bad scripts. If I was script editor, you know, I would basically recast the whole thing, preferably through a general election and get rid of all the dead wood and start again, only this time make it dramatic uh, with a good ending. That uh, sounds like a good place to end. Uh, Peter May, thanks very much. Thank you. That was author Peter May. Next up, the podcast panel. And now it's time for the podcast panel. Welcome, Alva Finn. Welcome, Lena Rabarus. Good morning, Brian. Good, Good morning. morning. We are here on what is going to be the hottest ever day in Belgian history, possibly 41 degrees Celsius. That's about 108 Fahrenheit for all of our global imperial listeners. And we should be talking imperial because there is a new government in Britain and it is time to keep calm and carry on. There's only been 17 cabinet ministers politically murdered in the last 24 hours. What's your take on Bojo? Uh, I thought that his speech was really good. Like, you know, it just had a lot of power in it. He in was like a Hamilton theatre sort of way? Just making a... Uh, no, I think pa- the people in Hamilton are, are slightly talking to a different crowd, I think, maybe. Yeah. But he really was, you know talking directly to the British people in a way that they could understand. I'm kind of over his staged hopelessness, having witnessed it and followed it for a long time. I mean, I guess what he does well is emotions, and politics should have more emotions in it. The EU needs more emotions in it, so I get the political skill behind what he's doing. But do I personally enjoy it? No, I don't. I think we will only know once his actions match his words. That is a scary in, uh, prospect. And really, in his, his speech, it's like, as you just mentioned, it's very emotional, very driven. There are no ifs and there are no buts. So let's see if he's really going to meet the deadline of the 31st of October. Whatever came after Prime Minister Theresa May would have looked better because she was not a good performer on the stage. And uh, so oh. he was his was really good, I think, in terms of the performance. Wow, I'm genuinely but the surprised at this conversation. You don't think it was... A good performance? I stopped listening to it. I didn't really watch the whole thing. I was in the US. No one Mm. in the US cares. Like, it was just all about the Mueller report. So, Mm. you know, I I just found it bizarre. Like, he's, like, Dominic Raab as foreign secretary. I just find it hard to take seriously. And that's the whole thing. All the architects of Leave or the biggest supporters of Leave uh, are now in power. That is going to put Brussels in an uncomfortable position. I'm sure that's going to put people in the parliament in the UK in an un- uncomfortable position. So, I mean, the last thing that Theresa May really had to do was reach across party lines and talk to Labour, right? That didn't go very well. And you just kind of wonder how this is all going to work out if the architects of Leave are now in power. Um, will it divide people more or will an opposition form together to stop them from leaving the UK without a deal? Yeah, I think my basic view is that Britain has got the government it deserves. It is capable of 
You'll be so popular limiting for having said that, Ryan. Well, it, it's <laughs> capable of limiting this government, the parliament, if it wants to, but people have to get their act together. And if they can't, well, you know, we are headed for a hard Brexit. Yeah. And, and a I general it, election. And I think it's easy for the EU to kind of push back against this caricature of a government. Like, it's not difficult. Yeah, I It's going to create pain for other European countries, but it's not hard for them to hold the line now. It's just, like, very easy to push them off the cliff and just say, be done with it. Yeah, I still think, though, all of the economic consequences are important still to member states. So I think while the spin will be easier to say, well, we're obviously not going to, you know, negotiate with this idiot. Um, but I don't think he's an idiot. I, I, I mean, I get why you say it. It's a thought I've had myself. Like, he's very clever. So I don't think he's an idiot, but I do think ah, he's yes, a clown. but they might actually say that, you know, he's, who is this, yeah, clown? I mean, he's a... He's Whoever kind of, he is, I mean, he's the prime minister now of the UK. He's the counterpart. They have to, to deal with him, uh, whether they like it or not. Oh, yes, uh, but the so, skin yeah. around it is what we're, we're talking and about. And it, right. it is different to Trump. Like, you, ha- yeah. you have to cope with the US in a different way to how one has to cope with Britain. Of course, we cannot compare. The U.S. is not part of the EU. It's it's totally different relationship. But I really think that he made it. He's the prime minister. And let's see. Mm. Well, let's move on to another intriguing topic. Mr. Martin Selmayr, the former Secretary General of the European Commission, I guess we can call him that now, who is allegedly going to Austria, to Vienna, to head up the EU's office in Vienna. Now, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn because I don't believe that for a second. I mean, what a ridiculous idea that he's actually going to do that job in Vienna. So do we have any ideas on what his real plan might be? Well, as they say, when the wave is so high, you just go down to let it uh, pass by. And I think it's a very smart move by the uh, new president-elect and him to make sure that he is in the shadow that I made the most controversial personality out of the scene. This is my decision. This is my election. This is my commissioners. And then you never know. He's appointed, but ambassadors, they don't need to finish their three years or two years. (laughs) So that's what I think. He's going to come back somewhere else from another door. I can believe him in lots of different roles, but I just do not believe him in this role. And at Vienna, I mean, maybe... London, maybe Washington, maybe... uh, Yes, I was surprised about the destination. Well, he can go and be an unpaid advisor to Sebastian Kurtz in the lead-up to his election. He can go and be a self-appointed firewall against Viktor Orban. He could go and run one of the international institutions in Vienna. But the idea that he's going to go and do a job that he would give his enemies or underperformers in the past is ridiculous. But then you couldn't really go on from being an ambassador to work in a government, could you, afterwards? Is that why you think that he's there? Oh, no, I, th- I think he would be doing that in his spare time. I, I just don't think the job is the job. I mean, I don't... And I have no I, proof of it, so, you know, this isn't journalism, but this is, you know... Common sense. with eyes. <laughs> being, an, <laughs> Using be, them. being an ambassador is very fun, though, and maybe he wants a little bit of a break after what has been... A whirlwind. I don't know. It's a cushy, nice way to kind of take a little break and think about what you want to do next. I think even the most high-level politicians do that. I always think that he always have a, a plan, a personality like him. Extremely smart, would always know what's next step for him. I know, but sometimes the plan doesn't align with what's actually happening, you know? So it might be, oh, great, I can go and be an ambassador and have a good time in Vienna, while also... Th- looking a little bit ahead you know but short term there is something else in the medium term 
And we don't know what that is. But there's no way that this is the medium-term plan. Let's watch. <laughs> well, I think it's time to do some summer reading recommendations. Having not thought about this at all, it's going to be a very interesting contribution from me. So let's go to Lena first. Oh, actually, I haven't had the moment to go and uh, do the books shopping yet, uh, Ryan. We truly are in the Twitter age, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, but I can recommend one book which my colleague gave it to me as a gift. It's not uh, La Ma uh, Brussels and Merde. I forgot the name of it. Um, uh, Clark, something Clark. Stephen, Stephen Clark? Stephen uh, Clark. Stephen Clark. Stephen Clark has a book out. Uh, yeah. This is a freaking virus. Like, what <laughs> is it with all of these officials writing books? That's what Martin Selmay would be doing. Like, <laughs> he's got some other book planned. I mean, this is ridiculous. They're all paid so much, and they don't have enough to do, and they have time to write books on the side. Yeah. I find it interesting. You should see Ryan's house is just like piled <laughs> high with books all against every single wall. And there are many of them about Europe. It's true. Um, yeah. Or Europe's leaders. No, but I'm in a feminist book club and I recently read a very interesting book. I, kind of, I hadn't really read anything like it before. It was by a Nigerian author. And the whole premise of it is that she is inhabited by gods that kind of drive her a little bit crazy mm -hmm. it's called fresh water i really enjoyed it and it has it's beautifully written actually so i would advise anybody who's looking it's not an easy read there are some depressing themes in it but mm. that's often how literature written by women is because life's not fair for us well there. Oh. That's a, a very positive note to send everyone off to the beach on. Well, all I can do is talk about the books I'm actually reading because I haven't planned anything in advance. So I'm reading an autobiography called Reporter by Seymour Hirsch, who's a very famous investigative journalist. And he goes through how he learned his trade and how he came to be like the man who broke lots of the big Vietnam War and Watergate stories. So everyone knows Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein from the Washington Post, but they often forget that Seymour Hirsch was brought into the New York Times to basically do catch-up. And he did break a lot of cool stuff around that. I like that. And it's a very different environment for journalists today, unfortunately. But I liked it to hear about the times when people did actually feel they could and should leak documents and weren't being sent to jail or mm. threatened with losing their job when they did it. It's very interesting. And I'm reading another one. It's called The Anxiety of Affluence. And it is fascinating where she talks to around about 50 quite rich people, so not the billionaire class, but the people with millions or tens of millions, and talks about all of their struggles. And there are real struggles, you know, there's not material struggles, evidently, um, but their struggles to cope with how do they hide their money or how do they spend their money or what tensions it produces within marriages where one person is not earning income and the other one is earning a lot or where one person has inherited wealth and the other person earns the wealth and all of the struggles of New Yorkers trying to get by on 400,000 to 3 do million. Do they really love me or do they love my money? <laughs> exactly. And that is Rachel Sherman's Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence that I'm recommending. But it, but it is fascinating to go into the way people rationalize things as well. They try and normalize their life 
So they will talk about how they bought some clothes on special at Target while living in their summer house in the Hamptons, for example. But what they there's two different categories. One that look upwards, so they try and normalise themselves by pointing out how much poorer they are than the very rich people they hang out with. And the ones who kind of look downwards and they try and recognise their privilege, but then they try and disguise it and hide it um, because they know that the people who don't have as much as them will be like shocked at the price of their sofa and things like that. And it's just fascinating anthropology. Everybody has problems. Life is relative. So whatever you're reading, or however many of these inspiring or depressing books we recommended you end up reading, we hope you're reading them somewhere nice. Um, And you may be well advised to go skiing, given how hot the temperatures are in most places. So on that note, uh, until next week. As always, podcasting is a team effort, so I want to give a big thank you to Wei Dong Lin, Andrew Gray, and Izzy Borshoff. We couldn't make this episode without them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.